I am Anthony Fowler. I'm Will Howell. And I'm Viola Giuda. And this is not another politics podcast. So the school year just started. For my child, I'm a little bit nervous how this year is going to go. Are we going to have Delta surge? The kids are still unvaccinated. Are we going to have school closures? Are we going to have shelter-in-place orders as we did a year and a half ago? Can I just ask a clarifying question? When you said you were nervous, Viola, are you nervous about COVID being, you know, severe? And are you nervous about the health implications of, of the pandemic? Or are you nervous that we might overreact to the pandemic and harm the economy and burden ourselves in other ways? Or maybe or maybe it's both. Maybe it's, maybe it's both at the same time. I'm just curious. I think I'm nervous about my child getting sick, though I fully recognize that that's sort of the slightly irrational parental uh, nervousness because the data seems to suggest that so far the kids are not extremely affected. Though, uh, you know, who knows what kind of other variants are going to come, Mu and Kappa. But I'm also nervous about the disruptions. I'm, I'm nervous about, you know, what if there's an outbreak at school? Are we going to have a school closure for two weeks? Or what if there's an outbreak at the university? Are we going to be told to go back to Zoom teaching? Yeah, and there's uncertainty everywhere because we don't know exactly what works, do we? Right? We think we know some things. Masks are a good idea, right? Vaccination but seems to be a good idea. Vaccination <laughs> seems like a very good idea. Um, but then there are these other things that we can do that effectively tell us to sort of stay home, right? Or to limit our mobility. Well, what do we know about that? This is something, Anthony, you you have written about, that you've explored. Tell us about this paper that you've that you've written. Sure, yeah. I wrote a paper. We, we published it recently with... Uh, with our colleague Chris Berry, who we've had on the show before. So Chris and I wrote this paper with um, some of our recent MPP students, Sammy Glazer, Sam Handelmeyer, and Alec McMillan. The paper actually came out of a class. Chris and I were supposed to teach in Barcelona in the spring of 2020. We have a study abroad program there. We were very excited to go to Barcelona for oh. the spring. And, and like everything else, that was canceled. And at the very last minute, we thought, okay, well, we have to teach some other class. And so we thought, well, let's do something relevant. Let's get a bunch of students together and let's do something. We don't know exactly what it's going to like, but let's do something that's related to the pandemic. We're obviously not biologists or epidemiologists, but we are, you know, public policy scholars. And so we, you know, we are well equipped to study policy interventions and government responses to the pandemic. And so that was the topic was let's collect a bunch of data. We'll analyze it together as a class. And, you know, and then this paper sort of came out of that class on the effects of various government responses to the pandemic. That sounds, that sounds really terrific. Although being in Barcelona, not during COVID, probably would have been even better. But hey, we wouldn't have yes. your paper. <laughs> uh, so in this paper, you look at a particular policy, the one that we were exposed first to. I think this is the first line of defense uh, for various governments, which is shelter in place. Yes, I think you know. I think most of us before before the COVID pandemic didn't think of this as a likely possibility that our governments would be you know ordering us to to stay at home, and so this was a pretty extreme kind of thing to do. And so it makes sense to sort of see whether or not it was effective or not. And so the the very you know the very top line results we you know we we studied the effect of these shelter in place orders on COVID cases, COVID deaths. We also have some data on mobility, how much people are actually moving around as measured by you know their their GPS data from their cell phones, and we also looked at unemployment. Um, it looks like there is very little, there's essentially no detectable effect of shelter-in-place orders on COVID cases and deaths. There is a small effect on mobility that dissipates pretty quickly. There is some meaningful effect on unemployment as well, where it looks like these shelter-in-place orders were increasing unemployment. And it looks like, you know, those, there's a little bit of a lag there. But once these orders have been in place for a couple of weeks, it looks like unemployment really, really does suffer in these places. So, so at least the very top line results 
don't lo- don't make it seem like shelter and place orders were doing the first order thing they were supposed to do, which was stop the spread of, of the disease. I personally am puzzled by this result in the sense that my prior was, of course, they must work. Of course, people people would respond to them. I responded to them in Illinois. I think shelter in place took effect on what, like March 24th. I probably haven't left <laughs> my house <laughs> after March 24th for like four months. So, so, so Anthony, can, can you tell us a little bit more about how you got the finding that you got, exactly how you looked uh, at the data to, to conclude that indeed there was very little effect on deaths and uh, cases? Maybe a place to start is to think about the data themselves that you're using. So where do you get the data on health and COVID deaths and unemployment and mobility? Where, what are you looking at? Sure. So for the, you know, for the COVID cases and deaths, lots of people were using this data. There was this Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center that was compiling the data that was submitted to them from state and local governments, from hospitals, from, from everywhere they could get it. Um, and there was this, so this one resource that was you know, pulling all that data together. That's where we got all the data on COVID cases and deaths. It's worth pausing for just a moment that, you know, this was all happening in real time. And probably the data was not, you know, perfectly reliable. There probably were, in fact, mistakes. And actually, in the process of our students working on their projects and us working on this paper, we did find a bunch of little errors. You know, some of them might not have been consequential, but some of them might have been very consequential. Um, And we, we, we made our best efforts to sort of correct the obvious errors. That's one challenge of kind of doing this kind of research in real time is, there's a rush to say something. And I think there, you know, there are a lot of studies out there where they're just trying to, you know, publish the first paper on COVID and they're using data that might be very preliminary, might have mistakes in it and so forth. We tried very hard to sort of fix some of those mistakes, but there, there are some cases where, you know, there are some kind of inexplicable data points where the number of cumulative cases is just zero in like a state and, and a, on a day when it doesn't make sense because you know they had cases before, things like that. So anyway, so there are kinds of those kinds of mistakes that we, we did our best to, to fix and address in some way. The other data sets, so like I said, we have some data on, so we have data on unemployment that comes directly from the Department of Labor. Um, we just have that at state level, not at the county level, but there are these you know, monthly unemployment reports at the state level. The data from shelter-in-place policies was also somewhat difficult because these things are, you know, every county is doing something differently. And there were various efforts by researchers to try to compile these things and figure out what was going on. There was a, there was a really nice repository by researchers at the University of Washington where they're pulling together all of these these state and local policies. So we tried you know we tried to utilize some data from there. Um, there were some people at Johns Hopkins that had found some county level data. The National Association of County, you know, so there's different resources available. We're trying to compile them all and and so that we can we can have a good measure of in each county what's going on in every state what's going on um, what what share of residents are covered by different orders things. Things like that. And then, yeah, there's this mobility data. We didn't, you know, we didn't, you know, do anything innovative in the mobility space. We used data that other people had been using. There's a, there's a group called Unicast that had put together all of this data on mobility that measures in every, you know, in every county on every day, how much are people moving around as measured by um, the, you know, the GPS data that's coming from their cell phones? And how does that compare with previous years before the pandemic? So you're kind of accounting for seasonal trends and you're seeing, does it look like people are moving around more, you know, this year than they were last year, et cetera. So can we linger a bit on the data involving um, COVID infections and COVID deaths? Because that's where you have these null results. This strikes me as just a really tricky thing in that you've already underscored the general administrative challenges associated with building a data set in real time or, 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 or drawing from a data set that's being built in real time. Even if you abstract away from those very kind of immediate local concerns, there are other kinds of 
worries that one might have when we think about the effect of a disease on the health of a population. So think, for instance, about somebody who turns on the news and sees that all these people are, are dying of COVID um, and then doesn't go in to get some, go into the hospital, get checked for something that's not COVID related, but that is potentially life-threatening and decides to stay home and and therefore doesn't get treatment and then and then dies, right? Does that's somebody who one might argue is obviously affected by the disease, but wouldn't be, or, or by the pandemic, but but who wouldn't be counted um, in in this particular instance, or people who actually contract the disease, but think you know the last place I want to be is a hospital right now because hospitals are the places where people go to die, and I don't want to die, and then they don't get any treatment either, and they too that's somebody who is actually you know, immediately affected, but isn't receiving treatment and who may not have ever been diagnosed, but who wouldn't be counted in the data that you, that, that were available to you and to, to us as a country. Do I have this right? Yeah. So yeah, there's lots of things to talk about there. Suppose you just care about the direct, what does it mean for COVID to cause your death, right? I mean, you, you told the story where it's, it could be kind of a very indirect thing, but there's, there's a medically diagnosable sense in which COVID causes some deaths and doesn't, you know, doesn't cause other deaths. So even if you're just trying to kind of measure the direct cases and the direct deaths that were caused directly by someone having the COVID disease, even that's not so straightforward because the number of cases that we detect is, is very dependent on how much testing we're doing. And especially early in the pandemic, when there's not a lot of testing going on, you would worry that, for example, a big inferential concern for our paper would be, what if, what if states start ramping up testing around the same time that they implement shelter-in-place orders? And so it'll look like the shelter-in-place orders are causing more cases when, in fact, they might be preventing them. Um, so that is a problem. And we do, in one analysis, try to account for sort of known changes in testing regimes. So in cases where we know that a state started implementing more testing on this date, we actually account for that and we'll, we'll sort of, we'll, we'll do our analysis within testing regimes. For, for our paper, I think the data on cases is probably not nearly as reliable as the data on deaths because the data on cases is so sensitive to how much testing is going on. But the other thing to say is that we are, of course, not capturing all of the adverse effects of COVID by any stretch of the imagination. There are all kinds of bad things that are happening because of COVID that aren't measured in cases and deaths. And like you said, one of the, you know, one of, you know, of course, there's the economic impacts, there's the social impacts, and there are even other health impacts. Like, for example, someone who says, you know, probably if you're having a heart attack, you're still going to go to the hospital, even in the middle of the pandemic. But if you just have, you know, long-term diabetes and you need regular checkups, you might, you might, you know, you might, you might push those back a little bit. And then that might have some long-term health consequence because of the pandemic. And that's something that we're not measuring directly. There certainly are people who have tried to measure, you know, excess deaths, right? What were the, what were the total cumulative health impacts of the COVID pandemic? Um, and, and it looks like they were, in fact, pretty, pretty severe. Yes, because, I mean, we can tell lots and lots of stories about the indirect effects on mortality, right? I mean, there are the indirect effects in well-being, you know, friendship patterns, divorce rates, all sorts of things. But, but just on, on mortality, um, we can tell stories about people not going to the hospital, not getting their meds, not getting the kind of exercise they used to get. Um, for fear of contracting a disease should they leave their home, that kind of thing. If, if you wanted to capture these, right, it seems, seems to me the best shot we have at it is just looking at the total volume of excess deaths. You know, over, I mean, that, that too is fraught with challenges, but you just sort of see how much did dying increase in a particular location during a particular time of the year um, relative, to, relative to the past. But, but you're, you're honing in on... on documented COVID deaths 
uh, using the trackers that we were all paying attention to when we were trying to get a handle on how big of a, uh, a deal this pandemic was. Exactly. That's right. So the basic methodology is difference in differences design. We've talked about those before on the show. We have, you know, so just think about the state level analysis for a second. You know, our outcome is number of cases or number of deaths in a state on a particular day. We are including, you know, in it, we're going to run a regression. We're going to account for time trends. So we're going to have state, we're going to have day fixed effects to account for the fact that the number of cases and so on is changing over time nationally for all of the states in the in kind of predictable ways. We're also going to have state fixed effects and account for the fact that New York just has more cases than Iowa and so on. And then we're going to have our treatment variable of interest, which is what share of the state is covered by a shelter in place order on that particular day. Now, one of the concerns you have is, of course, states are implementing shelter in place orders precisely when they expect cases to be increasing. And so I think if you just run that plain vanilla diff-and-diff design, you would worry that you would get a positive bias or you would kind of underestimate the, the helpful effects of shelter-in-place orders. To sort of further try to account for that possibility is we also just control for what the outcome was, the either cases or deaths per capita. We control for those levels in the, in the days running up to that particular day. So we, we, we might control for, you know, what was happening um, in, you know, in the last 14 days or what was happening in the last 21 days. So, we, so not only are we controlling for the fact that New York generally has more cases than Iowa, maybe April 30th has more cases than April 15th. We're also controlling for the fact that it looks like in this state, there seems to be an increasing number of cases. And in this state, there seems to be a decreasing number of cases, things like that. So we're trying as best as we can to sort of account for these trends. We do a number of different things. Um, another thing that we do in the appendix is we, we actually control directly for the epidemiological predictions that were made by scientists and were probably being viewed by governors and by policymakers in deciding whether or not they implemented shelter-in-place orders. So we're, we're trying to account as best as possible for the fact that we know that states are implementing these policies when they expe expect cases to go up. And even when we do all of that, it still looks like we can't find any evidence that these shelter-in-place orders are actually reducing cases. And how do you account for the delay? So, you know, if you shelter in place today, there still is some amount of time during which we discover that we have been infected before we shelter in place and, and we die. So how do you deal with this problem? Yes, no, you're right. The, for some of these outcomes, the effect should not be immediate. I think for mobility, the effect should be pretty close to immediate. If you implement the shelter-in-place yes. order, people are supposed to comply. They're supposed to stay at home on that day that the order comes into place. And you even give people a little bit of warning time and tell them, like, this order's coming in place, you know, in two days. So we, we, one way we, we deal with this is we just directly we test to see, well, you know, what are these effects over time? So instead of just asking what's kind of the average effect of having a shelter-in-place order, we can actually run a slightly more complicated flexible specification that estimates what's the effect of having a shelter order in, place today, order in place today, what's the effect of having had it yesterday and today, what's the effect of having had it for three consecutive days, et cetera. And so we can actually, you know, we can make a plot that's in the paper of here's the estimated effect of, of you know, shelter-in-place orders on cases after the order's been in place for X number of days. And we can go up to, you know, up to multiple weeks and we can see, does it look like maybe there's no effect right away, but eventually there's an effect that starts to kick in. And... There is there there are some, there are some interesting changes. So for cases and deaths, we essentially don't find much you know evidence. What you might have thought is maybe there's not an effect early on, but after a couple of weeks, then you start to see the beneficial effects of shelter in place. We don't see that for cases and deaths. We kind of just see nothing for for cases and deaths. For mobility, it goes the other way around. For mobility, there's there's an effect right away, and it goes away after about ten days. And even then, the mobility effect is relatively small. It looks like shelter in place orders cause people to reduce their mobility by something like. 
And then by 10 days, they're sort of back to doing whatever they would have been doing in the absence of shelter-in-place orders. And then for unemployment, it looks like the adverse effects of shelter-in-place on unemployment, you don't really see them until the shelter-in-place order has been in place for a couple weeks. So I want to clarify something. So, of course, people stopped driving. I remember, you know, a few weeks after shelter-in-place, I went uh, <laughs> for a drive and, and the streets were empty. So, so, so what you're just telling us is that there's no effect that we can attribute to shelter in place. That the day before shelter in place, the mobility was more or less the same as the day after, or a week before was more or less the same as a week after. You're not comparing this to baseline mobility that we experienced right now or we experienced three years ago. Is that correct? So it's worth pointing out that we are not, yes, we are not saying that the pandemic had little effect on, on any of these things. Of course, the pandemic as a whole had huge effects. There were huge national trends. So, you know, we have, a, we have a graph in the paper that just shows you, for example, with mobility nationwide, it looks like mobility dropped nationwide for everybody kind of around the same time. And then, you know, and then eventually kind of returned, you know, started to return back to normal after the pandemic had been going for a little while. And that was true in the places that were adopting shelter in place orders early on. That was also true in states that never adopted shelter in place orders. And I'm sure obviously some of that is just mechanical, like they're, they're working from home or they're laid off from their job. And so they're not commuting to work anymore. And so that's a nationwide thing. And so when you say, and when you say that you complied with shelter in place orders, you actually don't really know, right? I mean, you know that you stayed at home when everyone told you you were supposed to, but you probably would have done that if you also, if you lived in Wyoming and your state had not implemented a shelter in place order. So I, I, I know for myself, I definitely would. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think, I think for, you know, I think for my wife and myself, I think we, we sheltered in place before there was a shelter in place order. So I think we were kind of in the, in that list of people who were kind of always takers who were sheltering in place regardless. We're certainly not saying that public health guidance had no effect or national reporting of the pandemic had no effect. It surely did, but it doesn't look like these very invasive, costly shelter-in-place orders that were issued by state and local governments had any additional effect over and above that. It's, I think it's worth underscoring that the basis for that conclusion is to do something much more careful and thoughtful than what journalists are constantly asking us to do when they say, what's the effect of masking or what's the effect of um, any particular action that a state might take by comparing, say, COVID deaths in one moment in time in one state versus COVID deaths in another at the same time in another state. And we're asked to do this all the time. Look at how in the South, everybody's dying. And in the North, people aren't dying at quite such a big rate. And what do you know, the policies are very different in these two places or, or the kinds of uh, recommendations that are handed down are very different. And what you're doing is you're saying, well, wait, that's not a fair comparison at all. We need to account for, in the models that you're estimating, these common shocks that are being played out over time. We need to account for trends within states. We need to think about uh, conditioning present outcomes on the past on the basis of past outcomes. Um, if what we're going to do is back out an estimate that meaningfully speaks to the efficacy of a policy instrument, in this case being a shelter-in-place order. So the naive thing to do, you might generate a big effect, but when you do this kind of careful thing and you say, all right, I, I don't care. I mean, you're not arguing, as you say, that the pandemic didn't matter or that all kinds of remediation efforts on the basis of either cities or states or the private decisions that individuals make don't matter. But this one particular intervention that was incredibly costly didn't appear to have a material effect on health outcomes, at least 
as measured by COVID infection rates and COVID deaths. Yes. Yes, I agree with all of that. Yeah, and I would add one thing to that. So I agree with what you said about essentially bias in design, which is you can't just compare the North and the South. You can't just compare one state versus another. There are obviously, you know, lots of differences. And you also can't just compare one day to another. You've got to account for time trends. So we're trying to correct for those biases. You also can't, you know, cherry pick your cases, right? That's another thing that we saw a lot of. Hey, let's look at Sweden at, you know, but we only looked at Sweden when the, the comparison was sort of good for the claim we're trying to make. And then other times we ignored Sweden, you know, that kind of thing. You know, if you, if you get to pick your two cases, you can, you can tell whatever story you want. So, you know, so there's lots of these studies out there that I think are just not very reliable and it might not be easy for just a, a news consumer to, to be able to wade through the details of the study and know whether or not it's reliable. But I think it's a, it's a problem because some results are clearly more desirable than others. And people were sort of eager to publish results saying, oh, look, these policies are working. So I, I would like to linger more on two statements that both of you just made. So one statement is shelter in place orders do not work. I, I want to unpack it a little bit. Another statement that you made is that shelter in place were costly. So, so can we talk a little bit about this? So in which sense shelter in place do not work? So definitely what your study is suggesting is that just the fact that the governor issues a shelter in place on, let's say, March 24th does not affect the sort of evolution of the deaths and, and cases in this particular state. But should we then conclude that we would have been exactly in the same situation had none of the governors issued shelter-in-place uh, order? Uh, like, can you tell me how you think about this? Because I don't think that's the conclusion we should draw. So, yeah, so I guess one alternative explanation you might have in mind is there's actually there's actually a big effect of these orders but maybe it's a nationwide effect right that you know the first few states that implemented these shelter in place orders that signaled to the whole country that oh this is a serious problem and suppose that you know California implements their shelter in place order the people in Oregon they also start sheltering in place and now you actually have a bias in my study because now the people in Oregon, I was, I was previously thinking of them as almost a control unit for California, but actually they're, they're, they're affected by the shelter in place order. And in, is, is that the kind of Yeah, so, so that would be one thing to think about. And, and you don't even have to think about California or Oregon or, or, uh, or Washington, but you can think even about you know, Europe like, or, or, or China. We hear that Wuhan is completely uh, closed down and then they're sheltering in place in Italy. And then immediately we start adjusting our behavior. So perhaps one particular order you have to stay in place doesn't matter, but but the public message that that's somehow um, conveyed by different places imposing shelter in place cumulatively affects our behavior and saves us from from bad outcomes. Yes, I mean I'm I'm sure you're right that that our public health messaging matters. I'm sure you're right about that. And I'm sure there is some sort of cumulative effect that the more you see and the more the more consensus there is and so on, probably the bigger effect that has on people's behavior. Of course, I mean, we, we probably should at some point talk about the fact that this pandemic was extremely politicized. We've talked about that before. And so um, so that public health messaging was perhaps not as effective as you might have thought. And that I think that's, that's the other part of the equation as to why shelter-in-place orders had such little effect on mobility is because there were just as many people probably who didn't care that there were shelter-in-place orders and just ignored them. But anyway, you know, so I think you're absolutely right that we're not saying that public health messaging does not matter. Of course it matters. And of course, um, to the extent that actually sheltering in place helped mitigate the spread of COVID, and surely, I mean, surely it does. Surely the, the most obvious way to prevent the spread of a virus like, like COVID-19 is to just, is to try to avoid people who have it and, and prevent them from spreading it to other people. But um, if you're thinking about the question of did these particular state and county policies that were costly, and we'll come, we'll come back to that in a second, um, if you're thinking about what the effects of those were, um, it still makes sense to evaluate them and see whether or not they were effective or not. 
And then as for whether or not there, we did actually, so the spillover question is something we, we tried to assess directly. We tried to ask, is there any evidence of these kinds of spillovers? Is there any evidence that maybe the early states had a nationwide effect? And, and therefore, you know, therefore we actually suppose we just focus on the later moving states or we, we tested whether is it something about neighboring states? You know, we tried different ways of analyzing that question. And it actually does look like there is some modest spillover effect in neighboring states. So when Illinois implements their shelter in place order, it does look like it, it will it will affect Wisconsin and Indiana um, a little bit. But when we try to account for that, it doesn't change the it doesn't change the, 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 the bottom line result, which is that we still don't find any evidence that it affected cases or deaths. So, I mean. There, there are kind of roughly two categories of explanation you might offer for why you observe a null effect. One has to do with the efficacy of the change in behavior, people making decisions about whether or not to go outside and interact with one another. And the other one having to do with the efficacy of a change in policy. And you're emphasizing the latter, that clearly it mattered that people didn't interact with one another as much because we know some basic facts about the spread of disease and reducing that. But at the margin, the declaration of these policies didn't. You don't, we don't have direct evidence on the change in behavior. Imagine the following kind of story. What people, when they, when they saw the spread of the disease and they heard about these outcomes and they said, I'm going to stay home, they significantly reduced their mobility generally down to a few people, but that, and, and that there are real benefits from doing that, right? But that then when the stay-at-home order was handed down, then they locked their doors and shut their windows. And that, that additional reduction in their mobility rates, that there were no health benefits from. That the initial adjustment that we're able to measure had real benefits, but the add-on did not. We can't distinguish that possibility, no, from the possibility that, no, it's just about the change in policy. It's very hard to tease out the difference between these things. What is generating the effect, the change in behavior of people, as opposed to just the change in policy. And it's possible, at least, that there weren't real health benefit, you know, returns in terms of the health benefits from changes in actual individual behavior associated with this policy. I think you're, I mean, I, I understand, yes, I, yes I, I understand the spirit of the point, And I think you're right in some sense that it could be the shelter in place orders change behavior, but they change the kind of behavior that didn't matter for the pandemic. I mean, that's, but in fact, I mean, even with the GPS data, we find, we find very little evidence that, that there was an effect on behavior. It was a small effect on behavior, at least as measured by this mobility data. It was a small effect on mobility that dissipated after, after a week and a half. So... I think the bigger, the easier, the easier way to think about it is that there were just pe people just did not comply with the shelter-in-place orders. There are two different kinds of ways in which it might not affect you. One way is you were already sheltering in place, you know, in the absence of the shelter-in-place order. You were already paying very close attention to the national news, and you were doing what the public health people told you to do, regardless you of what your local government told you to do. And there were surely other people, and we know there were such other people because we know there were plenty of people moving around. We know that the disease continued to spread, who were still continuing to, you know to see each other, and, and they, lived, they went about living their normal lives. Maybe instead of meeting their friends at the movie theater or at the restaurant, they met their friends for house parties. That could even be a, potentially maybe even worse than you know, if they had met in public places, and they were spreading the disease. I, I think your finding is very interesting because it shows that people respond to information that they have about the, the severity of the disease and, and you know, the outcomes that can occur 
they respond spontaneously to that. They, they do not need a politician to tell them, you know, now stay at home. Now, of course, there are people who do not respond to that, who do not take into account that they have externality on other people, that, that if they get sick themselves, it's not only their health, it's also health of other people. And as you said, your data seems to suggest that those people kept on driving and meeting other people. They kept on being mobile despite the official shelter-in-place policy. But that, uh, you know, that sort of maybe is not so surprising, given that these shelter-in-place policies were really more or less recommendations. Like, I, I, I don't remember now the details, but uh, you tell me more. Uh, but, but my impression was that, you know, there was really not much that the state could do to you if you violated it. So in a sense, if you are the person who is a never responder, who is not scared of COVID, who thinks COVID doesn't exist or is really not, uh, not dangerous for you personally and you don't care about the externalities, it's not so surprising you did not respond to shelter in place. Yes, I think no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, there were I mean, there were r- rare cases of people getting fined and so forth for blatant blatant violations of the shelter in place orders. But you're absolutely right. I mean, and so I think a reasonable a reasonable reaction to my paper is to say, probably whatever we did was not the right thing. And so some people might say, well, we should have gone further, right? Well, the right answer was to actually be more authoritarian and actually have you know police officers, you know, checking in to make sure people were in fact home or something and finding them if they weren't. Um, And then other people might, you know, and then another reaction would be to say, we just shouldn't have had them at all. And we should have let people sort of do what they wanted because, and and maybe that would have not had as much of an adverse effect on the economy and we wouldn't have had, we would have had the same health outcomes. Both reactions are defensible reactions and it comes down to your own personal philosophy and, you know, how comfortable you are with, you know, government being more and more involved in people's lives. But I think the current middle ground that we chose, which was we're going to shut down the economy, but we won't really enforce too strongly the actual, you know, the actual public health guidance, uh, that, that seems to not have worked very well. I want to go back to this question of costly. How do we know it was costly? So you do find, so so within your paper, you do find an effect on mobility, but it's not a large effect. And as you said, it dissipates very quickly. So just within within your paper, can we really say it was costly? If people didn't comply with that, if they complied with that ex ante because they, they themselves decided to stay at home, to what extent just the shelter-in-place policy was costly? You can think about the cost in a few different ways. I mean, one is we, we do find evidence on, you know, adverse economic effects. So people lost jobs. It's worth saying that the unemployment effect is not nearly as large as the overall drop in unemployment over the course of the pandemic. So the pandemic itself cause a major increase in unemployment. It looks like shelter-in-place orders contributed to that, but maybe only contributed something like maybe 10% of that effect, something like that. There's another, I mean, you could think of other senses in which shelter-in-place is costly, even if people aren't really complying with it very much. I mean, it could be that, you know, people are still getting together for dinner with their friends, but they're getting together in their small one-bedroom apartments and, you know, instead of instead of going out to dinner, you know, uh, somewhere at a restaurant, let's say, that's a cost too, in the sense that it's, you know, you're, you're not doing what you wanted to do. The government is basically restricting what you can do without actually providing any clear benefits. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say that anytime the government is like, is, is putting in place some severe restriction on what you can do, I think that's reasonable to think of that as a cost. But there's also just the direct effects on the economy that we can pick up statistically on unemployment, for example. I think it would be, it would behoove us, as you do in the paper, to kind of read into the record some cautions against like bad interpretations of your findings. So one bad interpretation or one bad lesson that one might draw is that what elites say or what governments do when it comes to a pandemic are neither here nor there, that they have no effects. Or even more specifically, that shelter-in-place orders never affect health outcomes. That what you're doing is you're looking at a particular moment, 
right? The spring of 2020, with a particular, where, when all kinds of things were being learned about a spreading pandemic and all kinds of policies were being handed down. This wasn't the only thing that was being done. There were 75 other things being done with a particular enforcement regime associated with it. And, and you're not counseling, you know, health officials to abandon this policy instrument in all contexts, right? What you're saying is we don't see a return from this particular intervention as it was done in the United States in the spring of 2020 in terms of health outcomes as we were accustomed to measuring them, right? Vis-a-vis COVID infections and COVID deaths. Yes, I agree with I agree with all of that. You're right. I mean, yes, of course, there are lots of ways to misinterpret the paper. Yes, we're not saying that sheltering in place per se, in terms of behavior, has no effect. Surely, it surely it does have an effect on mitigating the spread of of a disease like COVID. Um, we're not saying that shelter in place orders could never potentially have an effect. Surely they surely they could, but in this particular instance, they didn't, and we can think about why they didn't. Although I do think it's really interesting to note, and I think it's, it probably is an important social science finding that. This might just not be the kind of thing that the U.S. government is uh, good at doing, especially on. And maybe that's okay. Maybe we're okay with that. I mean, I maybe I prefer, on the whole, to live in a country where the government can't just sort of force us to to, to shut down and, and stop doing whatever we want. Uh, you know, it, uh, that might mean that we're less prepared to deal with a pandemic like this. But that might mean in the future we're also less worried that some terrible autocrat's going to come along and abuse their power in some way. So there's trade-offs, obviously. So yes, I mean, there are lots of caveats. We're certainly not saying that, and we're also not saying that nothing the government did was effective. Of course, public health messaging surely did have an effect on people's behavior. You see this huge nationwide drop in mobility that surely was was a result of that, plus lots of businesses voluntarily voluntarily having their, their employees work from home. Things like that surely had an effect, and we're not evaluating those particular those particular mitigation strategies. To come, you know, this is this is sometimes a disagreement that we have on the show. So sometimes, you know, we like to we like to have lots of caveats, and we like to say, now of course, the study only applied to this one time in this one place, and so on. But you know, if you if you think there's any point at all to doing empirical social science, and I do because that's what I do for a living, and I and I think there are things we learn from it, then you must think that there's something we can generalize. There's something we can learn from this. We didn't know ex ante exactly what this was going to look like, and we've now learned that this is not the kind of thing that's effective when governments just tell people to shelter in place. People don't necessarily comply with that. That seems like a good thing to know. And if if a government was going to consider a similar policy in the future, I would probably advise them against it on the grounds that 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 probably it's not effective, and we're gonna, either going to either we're going to have to come up with another way to get the outcome that we want, or we're going to have to accept that maybe maybe we're not actually good at getting people to, to follow you know follow our orders. So you know you kind of go either direction with it, depending on what your personal ideology is. But uh, this is not the kind of thing that's going to likely to be effective in the future when we're talking about Americans who care about their personal liberty, many of whom don't trust the government to do the right thing, and so on. Um, so this kind of strategy is probably not an effective one. You, you could say a third thing that that perhaps they could have gotten the benefit of this public messaging messaging without the backlash that they got for trying to impose their will on on uh, citizens. They could have messaged that you know we recommend you to shelter in place. We really think this is going to be good for your health and the health of your family and your your loved ones. Uh, but we are not imposing an order. Yes, I think I, I think I agree with that. And this is, of course, outside the scope of our paper. But I also don't want to you know. Of course, we don't have any direct evidence on public health messaging. But I also don't want to just go around and full, you know, say, oh, public health messaging was fantastic because we know that wasn't very fantastic either, right? I mean, we know that... That, that deserves an episode on its own. This is, think, yeah, yeah, I mean, we know that this past year and a half has been horrible for the reputation of science and 
the New York Times and all, all lots of other, you know, lots of other. I would not say uh, otherwise respectable of science, but 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 uh, institutions that we thought were supposed right, to follow right. science. Right, right, and I think yeah. I think there were plenty of people who there are plenty of people who now think, okay, well, I, you know, I don't really know what to think, but, you know, I don't trust what Anthony Fauci says, and I don't, you know, yes, we're not saying the public health messaging was fantastic. It, it surely could have been better. And in fact, probably one of the reasons why there was such low compliance to shelter-in-place orders was the fact that this pandemic became politicized so early on in such an unfortunate way. But wait, you don't have direct evidence on compliance. I mean, your story is consistent with massive non-compliance, that is, you know, policy makers were whistling in the wind when they said stay at home. It's also consistent with a story in which case in which everybody was staying at home. Everybody, they didn't, they didn't need to hear the instruction. Oh, but, but we know it's yeah. somewhere in between, right? We know it's a mix of both. Because if everyone had stayed at home, I mean, we wouldn't have had, we wouldn't, we wouldn't still be in the middle of this pandemic, right? Sure. No, because a lot of people were not supposed to stay yes, at home. We have even data on this. The... So we, know that, we know that they weren't staying at home. Yes. We know that the cases and deaths continued to proliferate and so on. But we also know that the shelter-in-place had a lot of exceptions, not like the, the frontline. Like there were a lot of people that were exempt from shelter-in-place. And in your data, you can't really distinguish, you know, who is moving, who is not moving. So I, I agree with you that I think you were right. You know, it, it's true that a lot of people didn't comply, but, but we don't know that for a fact. It could have been that everyone who could have stayed at home stayed at home even before shelter in place. And that's why we didn't see there any drop at the shelter in place order. And the people who kept, kept uh, moving around are the people who, you know, who were bus drivers, grocery workers, medical workers, and so on. I mean, we, I guess what I just don't know what you mean by no. I mean, there are things that, yes, I mean, the paper does not explicitly show, rule out the possibility, but we know that there were lots of people who were not complying with these orders in the sense that there are anecdotes, there's the data, there's the, you can just look at the sheer number of people moving around and kind of rule out that, that, you know, you can put a, you can put a bound on these things. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty comfortable saying there were lots of people who weren't complying with public health guidance and caused the pandemic to proliferate in the way that it did. There are two things, right? There, one is the general proliferation of the pandemic. And then there is the efficacy of a particular policy intervention. Um, those aren't one and the same. And your paper speaks to the inefficacy of these shelter in place orders. Um, and the extent to which we want to attribute that to non-compliance by people who were insisting on going out anyway, as opposed to people who were, you know, they were going to stay home regardless, um, is just unclear. Um, having, having said though, I mean, I, earlier I tried to put some bounds on like, how far do we want to take this paper? I too am inclined to say, well, there are other ways in which we might want to run with it in that you're not showing null effects from a little thing that the state might do, right? It's not, this was at a time when lots of things were being happened, but this was an unbelievably draconian state intervention. Um, this was not the state offering, you know, on a website, some technical advice about, you know, don't touch your face and then showing, well, what do you know? That didn't seem to bear, uh, uh, um, you know, didn't, didn't seem to, to save lives. This is, this was arguably one of the most draconian things that the government has done in a very long time, but your evidence suggests otherwise. We ought to take that into account. Um, death rates vis-a-vis -vis COVID is really striking. I agree. I agree. I, I think, yeah, I think a reasonable thing to have expected would be to say we should have, you know, it would have been completely reasonable to say what we should see is some effect on cases and deaths, but then also maybe some adverse effects on the economy. And then we'd and then sit we around and weigh those, those. trade-offs and we'd say, which, right. And that's, that's, a, that's, that's not the what we life we were in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
mean, look, this is an unbelievably, we've already gestured towards this, an unbelievably politicized issue. And, you know, on our show, we've talked about other things that have been unbelievably politicized, like voter ID laws. And then we try to estimate what's the effect of voter ID laws in particular, and they tend to have small effects that don't comport with the grand claims on either side of the political divide. And, and you're doing a similar kind of thing here. You're saying, look, there, there are, are big claims being made, and they just don't stand up to careful empirical scrutiny. What kind of a reception have you, has this paper gotten? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I would say, we, we, you know, the paper's published in PNAS. It's a, paper, a very respectable science journal and so on. And we've, we've talked to a handful of reporters and we've gotten some news coverage. But I would say there's been not much reaction at all, especially relative to other papers that have more politically desirable results. If you're a science reporter, you're much more eager to write, about your, to write the paper about how, look, you guys, you need to listen to, you need to, listen to your, your government because you know, it's in your best interest. Whereas this study that says, hey, this thing we did didn't work, that's not a very pleasing result to a lot of people who want to believe that these things worked. And so we get a lot of either negative reactions or we just get a lot of people ignoring us altogether and hoping, you know, hoping. So a lament that I have? If I could get onto a soapbox for a moment, those who would like to leverage the government in the service of solving public problems and count me among them, be it involving issues involving health or any number of other issues, I think generally do an inadequate job of pausing and saying not that the demonstration of action or the deployment of resources is not enough, that one should pause and say, well, did it actually work? And if it didn't work, what do we need to do to adjust our behavior? And so a thing, I mean, the lesson that I would like to draw from this paper that you've written, Anthony, is, is that the way, there was something about the way that it was, that, that, that it was done that, that led to it not yielding meaningful outcomes. And so it may be locked in that this simply can't be done, right, in a way that will yield health returns. It also could be, no, we need to rethink the messaging, the lack of enforcement, the, the kinds of resources that were deployed, how it was coupled with other policy interventions that were happening at the same time. Because just because the state does something does not, and in fact, we should, we should I think in the main, there's lots of evidence and lots of policy domains that much of what the state does yields null effects. I mean, null effects is, is, is the norm that what our government does in many ways is ineffective in all kinds of domains. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that. I think... Um... I think it's a perfectly reasonable reaction to say, okay, we shouldn't give up on governments, state and local governments trying to do what they can to address major public health crises, but we need to rethink how we go about these things. And just, just issuing these orders is not, is not enough. I think, that's, I think that's perfectly fair. But I also think I, kind of, I, I also kind of sympathize with the other side of the debate, which says, um, you know, maybe we don't want, we don't want our government to be th so authoritarian that they can control our movements and tell us when we can leave our houses and so forth. And even if that means that we're not as equipped to deal with a once in a hundred year pandemic, that means in the other 99 years out of the century where we're, we have a little bit more liberty and uh, you know, we feel like we have more rights and so on. And so I see, I see both of those arguments and I see, the, I see the other side of the argument, which is to say, maybe state and local government just should, this isn't the kind of thing they should be trying to do. So Viola, does Anthony get to have a bottom line on his own paper? Or is it just yes, us? Yes, yes, of course. That's going to be the most fun part of the episode. What's your bottom line, Anthony? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I didn't. I didn't think I would have to have a bottom line. I mean, I've you know, I've, I've written what I wanted to say in the paper, so maybe that's my bottom line. Um, the thing, the thing that the thing that is, is maybe the most interesting to say is just that 
I am just, the thing that's most upsetting about about all of this discussion over you know all of the science around COVID is just how politicized it is, and it's really un, really unfortunate that it is that way. Like we have to be willing to have reasoned discussions. I mean. Just, I mean, just think about the number, the sheer number of things where you're not even supposed to discuss them on, you know, the pages of the New York Times or on, you know, YouTube or wherever, and you'll, you'll essentially get shouted down by one side or the other just for even discussing it. We've got to stop this, and I don't know how to stop it. And I would like at some point for us to get back to, like, real science and real evidence. And, like, let's just weigh things. Let's just talk about things. You know, I would love for a public health official to say, you know what, like, we found, you know, it looks like there's there's this effect of this policy, and it looks like there's this risk, this risk is out there. And, you know, I, public health scholar, I don't know what the right thing to do is, because there's all kinds of other things that we have to trade off, but here's what we know. And, mo- and maybe most importantly, here's what we're uncertain about. That would be fantastic. And we haven't heard much of that during the pandemic. And I think that has led lots of people to just not trust in experts and scholars and scientists because they say, oh, those people, they're just, they're just ideologues. And so I'm just going to do whatever I want, which is, and that's not a great thing either, right? It's to just not trust, you know, let's not listen to scientists at all because, and just do whatever we want because, because we know that they're so politicized. So anyway, all of this is terrible. I'd like for somehow for us to get back on track. I don't know how that happens. Um, yeah, but, I am, um, yeah. So I'm with you on getting back on track. I'll say, I don't, when we think about the politicization of science, I don't think it's just about scientists themselves towing the party line. It's that there are all kinds of organized efforts to marginalize scientists and to, at the, at the moment a scientist comes out and says there's uncertainty in this space, to use that as evidence that scientists don't know what the hell they're talking about and to further marginalize them. So it's a very tricky thing, um, how you actually break through. Um, but a piece of it is um, writing papers like this which is trying to reasonably, I mean, look, there, there, there is, what is the optimal messaging that we need to deploy in order to induce changes in behavior in the faces of a pandemic? Um, it isn't obvious that what that optimal message is, is just at every step of the way, reading the latest abstract of the latest studies, but that there ought to be a space nonetheless, wherein serious minded folk think about what policy instruments work and which and which instruments don't. Um, and your paper, I think, really constructively contributes to that. Um, and as I say, I was sure we were living in a world in which um, it was all about trade-offs. That sh- these, these, these interventions decidedly saved lives. The question is whether or not the downside in terms of the economic costs were worth it. And we could think of other downside costs as well. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodup. Thanks for listening.